We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio today by Dimitri Buyas of TVBS News. Hi. And from Taijong by Donovan Smith. Always great to be here. And tonight we'll be discussing the KMT defending its decision to send its vice chairman as the head of a delegation to the Straits Forum in Sharman. The Ministry of National Defence releasing a new revised civil defence handbook that may itself need some revisions. New regional monthly public travel passes serving the North, Centre and South are going on sale. The Constitutional Court ruling that defamation clauses are constitutional. Police being slammed for entering a church to make an arrest. And the ramen wars as isopod, frog and durian all end up on the top of bowls of noodles. But we'll begin with Foreign Minister Joseph Wu travelling to Europe to attend the European Values Summit in Prague this week. Now speaking during his keynote address, he stressed that Taiwan wants to secure peace and stability by maintaining the status quo and its relationship with China, and it needs the support of European states to do so. He also warned that war in the Taiwan Strait could be a shockwave for Europe if supply chains are disrupted. Now the Foreign Minister gave his keynote address after Czech President Petra Pavel opened the event by calling for a united state by democratic countries toward Ukraine and its war with Russia and also appeal for more support for Taiwan's democratic government. We spoke immediately after Pavel's opening speech, which he watched. He basically he watched Pavel's speech from the front row and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs actually posted photos of him sitting at the front row watching Pavel's speech. However, there's always a however here, Pavel left the room after speaking. That, despite much ado here, about whether the Czech president would interact with the foreign minister, who also this week held talks with the president of the Czech Senate and the head of the Czech lower house of parliament. So, Donovan, a bit of an embarrassment there, seeing as there was photos published of the lack of anyone sitting in the front row when the foreign minister was speaking yeah that is a little bit embarrassing um and it's a, a little bit surprising considering that pavel had already said that he was considering talking or possibly even meeting with president Tsai. um so you know and, and it's a little bit disappointing that you know at least some of the major government figures you know, didn't stick around for his speech. So that that's a little bit embarrassing there. Um, but, I mean, overall, he's, it still sounds like it was a productive trip. I mean, he did meet with some important figures, uh, mostly people who've already shown support for Taiwan in the past. So, you know, while embarrassing, it still sounds like it's a worthwhile trip. Well, it's going to be a very successful trip. He also plans to visit Brussels in another move that is uh, likely to anger China. So, again, by opposing democracy with autocracy, the foreign minister is consistent with the ruling party stance on maintaining the status quo, meaning that uh, democratic Taiwan and a non-democratic China. And this is consistent with the ruling party who is fighting for re-election. So this strategy could have two opportunities and two challenges for the ruling DPP. The first opportunity challenge is to give the opposition free room to reach to China to use its connection to establish dialogue with China. And this is an opportunity as China is now seen as a negative lean on the international stage, meaning that the opposition will be seen again as compromising with the enemy. And then the interaction with China could work but not within the next few months as China knows that it is useless to promise anything to uh, Taiwanese candidates in a presidential 
election. So you, if you get elected, then we can talk. And then the second opportunity challenge for the uh, is the development of the economy. Trade negotiations have been moving forward pretty fast, and we could see more improvements ahead of the election for one simple reason. If the opposition wins the election, trade negotiation might need to restart. So uh, there is an opportunity here. The economy, uh, these the trade negotiations will surely bring more benefits to Taiwan. So, But this is still a challenge because Taiwan does uh, more than semiconductor and machine. There are also machine tools and other equipment that go to China. So if the government cannot boost exports by the end of the year, the economic growth in Taiwan is likely going to average around 1%. So yeah, this is consistent with the uh, the ruling party stance and they've been very successful. And then let's see how it develops for the opposition party in the upcoming weeks. And Donovan, of course, we also had the digital minister this week in London and the economics minister in Europe as well. I mean, do do you think, obviously, Dimitri touched on trade there. Obviously, both these ministers were trying to press trade and economic ties. Do you think maybe Joseph Wu's trip to the Czech Republic took something away from the prevalence of the other two trips? Well, I mean, the way they pitched it was, I think, a, a, a little bit too centered on Joseph Wu himself. Um, you know, I, I really think they, they should have put a little bit more effort on onto the other, uh, you know, onto the other trips. I mean, I, I've seen or heard very little about, for example, um, Audrey Tong's visit. But the the economics minister visit to France and Germany that is potentially quite significant. Um, I'm, there have been talks, but there there are some potential problems um, in terms of labor, and there's a, discussions going on about subsidies and all of that. For, for example, a semiconductor um, fab in Germany, um, and, you know, and those could, you know, that's a major investment. Uh, you know, those are big, multi-billion-dollar investments. Um, now, of course, that's going to be up to TSMC. It's not going to be up to the economics minister. Minister, uh, but um, you know, she can potentially help smooth that. Uh, you know, smooth that transition and can possibly help with that. And as Dimitri noted, um, you know, things like hand tools, um, I'm here in Taichung, which of course is, you know, hand tool central and machine tools um, are big exports from Taiwan, although Germany is also a big exporter of machine tools. Um, So, I mean, there's a lot of potential economic uh, cooperation between those countries that could go on, and it would be good to diversify away more from China in, into the EU. So, you know, and the EU, unlike the U.S., is in a little bit more of a mood to sign free trade agreements around the world. So, yeah, you know, if there's the possibility of, of smoothing the way for a free trade agreement, that would be fantastic. Well, this is an opportunity to sign this trade agreement, but it's also a challenge because, uh, as you mentioned, uh, the trade minister, the, the economic minister is heading to Europe, France, and Germany. France, there is this uh, Taiwanese company, Prologium, who is planning a massive investment in France. 
these investments have also raised concerns in Taiwan. Uh, we heard before of this Silicon Shield, this conception that having those investments in Taiwan make the situation across the Taiwan Strait not at a zero-sum game. There are benefits to do this trade across the Taiwan Strait. So uh, if the there is this um, a growing perception that investments are going to go and out of Taiwan, this could be a concern for the local, the average Taiwanese citizen uh, who has no benefits in the in the semiconductor industry. Yeah, the Prologium, uh, which is the battery company, they caused a stir by saying, oh, we're no longer a Taiwanese company, and they said that, no, 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 those, uh, those, it, what they meant to say is that, they, you know, we're, we're more of an international company now, uh, but yes, they plan to keep investing in Taiwan, but the way it was interpreted was that they were not going to be investing in Taiwan, but the whole Silicon Shield thing, I've written some columns, there's really no such thing as a Silicon Shield, unfortunately. The, the Chinese Communist Party will make whatever decisions it wants to make based on their own political calculations, primarily on domestic concerns. Uh, I don't think that, well, you know, they're not going to make it based on, on either the, the concept that, you know, they would not, in, the concept that, that China would not invade because they would lose access to the chips is, or that they would invade t- Taiwan to get access to TSMC and uh, chip fabs, both are fallacies because if there's a war, uh, the, the, you know, the, supply chain, the supply chains that, su- that supply the semiconductor fabs are enormous. They involve hundreds of companies and, hun- you know, thousands of inputs. And there's absolutely no way that that supply chain would be able to be maintained. So even if they got the fabs intact, they still wouldn't be able to produce anything because the supply chains would be cut off. Um, and I, I, I don't buy the argument that they would, you know, they would not invade Taiwan because they'd be worried about losing access to the chips because they, really, the Chinese Communist Party is about power, uh, not about, you know, they're about power. They're not about the economy. They, I think they would they would survive in their minds. They'd be fine without it. Moving on now, and KMT chairman Eric Ju on Wednesday of this week defended the party's decision to send a delegation to this weekend's Straits Forum in the Chinese city of Xiamen. Speaking after a regular weekly meeting of the party's Central Standing Committee, Ju said he firmly believes that dialogue between the two sides is the best way to maintain peace. And he said that criticism of the decision to send Vice Chair Andrew Shah as its representative to the forum by the DPP is solely aimed at discrediting the KMT. He went on to say that the DPP's persistence in touting anti-China rhetoric has created unnecessary obstacles to cross-strait exchanges and the forum this weekend is an opportunity for both sides to resolve misunderstandings and reduce tensions. Now, China's Taiwan Affairs Office this week claimed to have invited more than 5,000 Taiwanese to actually attend the Straits Forum, saying that it invited representatives from the Taiwan People's Party, the New Party and the People's First Party. However, the Taiwan People's Party said that it did not receive a letter of invitation, but it also said that one party official will be attending the event but in a private capacity. So we talked about, but you touched on a bit of China there earlier, Dimitri. It's the Straits Forum time. Do you think? Do you think Joe Blow public really cares about this? Well, uh, 
the economy is undeniably a pressing concern for businesses and and citizens alike. Uh, in the media, they, they they were discussing a couple of weeks ago when are we going to restart those direct links? Because some middle um, Taiwan is very different from South Korea. We don't have those major conglomerates with mostly small and medium-sized enterprises. So, for these businesses who uh, who invested in China, there is a concern now. They traveling to China is getting more complicated and they also hope that the economy, the global economy can uh, restart so they can just start exporting again. Taiwan, it's it's a, it's an export country. So many, um, I, I think there are also this concern about having those big, big companies investing in, for example, TSMC investing in the United States or Japan or later on maybe one day in Germany because you would have, you would see the supply chains and companies in the supply chain also making the move to uh, those foreign countries. So yes, it's it's an opportunity for the for the opposition parties to attend such an event. It's a double-edged sword because uh, they will be framed again as talking to the enemy, but it's a necessary step for them to show that and they want to show that well Discussing with China is is also it's also important. There, it, we we we've heard we know in Taiwan it's everything is about sovereignty, but economic sovereignty is also very important. Uh, China remains a major uh, one of our major export markets, and we have absolutely no control. So in the news, we heard about the uh, Mofa head to traveling to uh, to Europe, uh, other ministers going to Europe. But the big news today is. Um, Secretary Blinken traveled to China. That that's the big news. The concern we have as a as a sovereign state is that we have to wait until after the the trip is done and to make a call to ask about well did they say anything about Taiwan because Taiwan and China have had any interactions over the past eight years. So sovereign economic sovereignty is is equally important. And if you want to have things done and for the opposition party to regain power, they need to find a way to discuss to China to go beyond those uh, politics and beyond politics and those sovereignty issues. So, Donovan, I mean, Dimitri touched on the fact that maybe at the Straits Forum they'll be discussing business and trade rather than simply politics. From what I understand, because you know this is a large conference with a large number of people, then get up, people get up and speak, and basically it's in United Front Kabuki Theater. You know, it's you know, all, all you know, the speakers get up and peons to cross straight peace and how we all love Mazu and you know all this stuff um, so the real question is does any business get done on the sidelines of this thing um, and also do you want to be associated with United Front Kabuki Theater you know it's it's because it, the whole thing is very explicitly a United Front I mean, messaging campaign on you know cross straits unity and cross straits you know this that and the other you know being associated with it in the first place is problematic um, because it is a propaganda exercise that's really all it is um, now the case could be made I'm sure the TPP will try to make this case and the KMT will try to make this case that you know what can what discussions can happen between important people on the sidelines could possibly help Taiwanese business people. They can also meet with Taiwanese business gr- groups on the, and um, citizen groups on the sidelines and students and 
work to safeguard their interests or at least listen to what's what their situation is you know so there may be valuable things that could be done on the sidelines but these things could be done without actually supporting this united front activity you know um andrew Shia has already made uh, multiple trips that were not part of the chinese communist party messaging on uh you know on annexing taiwan so you know i i Personally, I think that they would have been better off not attending. But there is a, a, an interesting thing to note here. When Eric Jew was the chair back in 2015, 2016, in that period, you know, he personally went to China and met with Xi Jinping and was, you know, beaming in his pictures while he's grasping his hand. But since he's become chair this time, it's noteworthy that Eric Zhu has not gone to China at all. He's always dispatched Andrew Xia, who's his deputy. Um, and that is sending a pol- political message. He's sending someone high enough in the party to be respectable, but he himself is not going. So he seems to be trying to signal that the KMT is not as close to China as it used to be. And Dimitri, do you think maybe Eric Zhu should go? Uh, it's it's a difficult issue because it's how you leverage that 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 trip. Uh, mind you, went to China in a, a kind of a successful trip, but when we look at what we what after the the trip and the way it was reported in Taiwan or international media, it wasn't seen as that successful. So if he goes to China. Uh, the KMT will maybe believe that, that that could help in the presidential bid of Mayor Hoyoi. But after that, it's in the numbers. You have to see the polls later on and see whether it's helpful or not. So it's it's a, would be a very risky trip, I think, for the KMT head. And the Ministry of National Defence on Tuesday of this week released a revised version of its Civil Defence Handbook. Now, the move comes after the original version was heavily criticised for being out of date when it was published in April of last year. Now, according to the Ministry's All-Out Defence Mobilisation Agency, the updated version of the handbook has almost doubled its content and been expanded from 28 pages to 48 pages. The new version consists of two main parts, peacetime preparation and wartime responses, and has far more descriptions of Civil Defence concepts and more detailed suggestions on how to respond to different types of emergencies. It outlines, for example, safety measures for civilians during an air raid, major fire, building collapse, major power outage, water shortages or shortage of essential goods, while also explaining basic survival skills and offering emergency hotlines where people can call, just depending if there's any telephone lines working. But it appears the new version may also need some revisions itself, as the Defence Ministry later this week said it fully accepts criticism after illustrations of Chinese military uniforms were criticised. That criticism came from an administrator of the Facebook group IDF, Qingguo Fighter, who pointed out that China had since changed its military uniforms and the new uniforms do not distinguish between the branches of the military like those ones posted in the Civil Defence Handbook. So, Donovan, they revised it, but they didn't quite revise it enough. And what made me really laugh is when the Ministry of Defence turned around and said we couldn't use photographs of the Chinese uniforms due to copyright concerns. And what I thought was even more funny is they 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 just they said, well, instead we had to use cute illustrations. <laughs> cute, um, it was the word they used. I really find it hard to believe that the uh, People's Liberation Army is going to sue Taiwan <laughs> for the 
for using photographs, um, and I believe that uh, there are photographs that they could use that that could be publicly usable from uh, Wiki, from you know Wikimedia Commons or from Facebook uh, that feature PLA uh, you know PLA soldiers. I, I really just find find that a, a completely bizarre concept. Um, so they should have been able to get photographs, and even if they couldn't get photo, even if they decided they couldn't use the photographs, they could have gotten the illustrators to get the uniforms correct. And it's really kind of embarrassing that you know the, the, the Taiwan doesn't. They sh- you know considering you know considering the threat, the potential threat from China, that they can't identify their uniforms and properly illustrate them is really kind of alarming. Um, you know, one would think that they, this is something they would have an operational awareness of. However, I do think overall the concept of producing the booklet is a good idea, even if the execution seems to be a little bit botched. I saw some of the recommendations in it, and a lot of them were solid recommendations. So, I mean, fundamentally, it's still a good thing, but obviously they need to revise it yet again. Well, I, I personally find the idea of carrying a little booklet like that to identify people kind of funny. And at the same time, uh, especially in times of war, uh, y- if you start to try to identify uniform, we are not there yet. Uh, I would have expected maybe an English version of that document, which is won't be available anytime soon. Maybe we should also produce a Thai, Vietnamese, Indonesian and other uh, Southeast Asian languages. Uh, version, but I guess it, that it follows on the strategy of drawing the line between us and then, in line with the foreign minister's comment that China will invite Taiwan by 2027. Now the question is not whether it's true or not. I'm confident that the foreign ministry has the latest information on this matter. The problem is the timing, the presidential election, and the context. The two sides haven't had any interactions in eight years. So if there was a lack of communication, well, we understand that they are both responsible for this situation and maybe this booklet can help increase communication or help increase our understanding of the Chinese military. Now, if the ruling party believes that there is no need for interaction or communication, well, we have to worry about miscalculation as the DPP has considered China a paper tiger for years. Well, it could, you know, it really could help uh, boost interaction because they could call up uh, the PLA and say, hey, can you send us some pictures? You know, we're a little short over here. I heard (laughs) that we have a a hotline. When Mindyo went to China, they set up a hotline and we've never used it. Maybe it's a chance to make a phone call. Yes, (laughs) And we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials. And welcome back to Taiwan This Week. And the Constitutional Court has upheld the constitutionality of legal provisions. That holds individuals liable for maliciously spreading defamatory content without taking reasonable steps to verify the truth of the information they disseminate. Now, the ruling on Articles 310 and 311 of the Criminal Code came after eight individuals found guilty of defamation in separate cases challenged the constitutionality of the clauses. They had been arguing that they are against freedom of speech as protected by the Constitution. Now, I won't go into this because it's rather legalese but Donovan obviously this is mainly aimed at the the media and people that take to the interweb to spew their venom so to speak 
that's my understanding. But I mean, these laws have applied to people calling their neighbors stupid, um, you know, things like that. So the laws make sense, I think, in a broad sense, but sometimes they may be over-applied, if that makes any sense. In other words, they're too literally interpreted. You know, if somebody parks their car, you know, illegally or blocks you off and you get frustrated at them and, you know, call them an idiot or something like that, 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 those kinds of, those kinds of things sometimes end up in courts, which is, I think, kind of over the top, if you know what I mean. Um, but yes, it's interesting that the courts did weigh in on this. Um, when it comes to the media, I, I think it, this makes sense. Um, you know, the, the media should have some responsibility and some accountability to it. Um, and if you, you know, there, there's kind of a fine line on social media between what's public and what's private, and that's a little bit problematic there. So I could see some issues on that. If someone's posting for a few of their friends versus uh, in a group with thousands of people in it, there's kind of a, I think there is some distinction to be made there. Um, and the laws, I don't think, really make that distinction. Um, but generally speaking, I do think that the, the laws are constitutional if what's being said or done is either untrue or intended to insult or attack in a way that's not based on facts. I agree. This is an important ruling, which could, but you know, in Taiwan, that could always, it's going to end up, it's going to result in endless battles about the who said what, and that could leave actually judges to decide what is right or wrong. My concern is how you can use this against the media. Under two important articles, a defamatory act is committed when the intent of malice and negligence is verify in verifying the truthfulness of a false statement before uh, before its publication. I think that's that's really hard to demonstrate, and that could be used uh, again against whoever said something in the media or on social media. The ruling said that individuals or groups that express opinions based on untrue information without knowing its untruthfulness, its untruthful nature beforehand or having the malicious intent of being careless should not be found guilty of defamation. But again, that's going to be very hard to demonstrate. Dimitri has a good point here in that there is a lot of problems in determining what is true and what is not. But the real tricky part here is malicious intent. You know, that, and the thing is, is that if we were not faced with intentional disinformation campaigns coming from hostile forces, particularly from across the strait and their allies in Taiwan, If we were not faced with that kind of a situation, I, I would probably be against these laws um, because it's really hard to, to prove a lot of this stuff. And there is a lot of debate as to what is actually true in some circumstances. Um, you know, there's a lot of debate about certain issues, which... You know, sometimes it started out one way where everybody says, oh, no, that's a conspiracy, it's a lie, and then they turned out to be true. So there, there is that concern. Um, you know, Facebook has had a lot of these problems where, you know, they banned posts, and then 
later it turned out that, oh, no, what, what, what they banned as a conspiracy and as untrue did actually either turn out to be true or quite a possibility, such as the possibility of the coronavirus being a lab leak as a possibility. It now seems to be a genuine possibility. Um, so, you know, I mean, there is that line. The problem that Taiwan faces is that the United Front is actively targeting Taiwan. And there are bad actors out there, and a large number of them, and well-funded and well-supported, that are doing this with malicious intent to interfere with elections, interfere with Taiwan's democracy, and trying to destabilize Taiwanese society. So that creates a difficult situation, because as Dimitri knows, yes, there are cases where it is really hard to prove things, but on the other hand, when you have hostile actors actively trying to undermine society, you have to do something. And moving on now from that, and talking of travel passes, because the new regional monthly public transport passes serving the North, Centre and South went on sale this week ahead of the programme's launch on July the 1st. Now, the monthly T-Pass can be used from July the 1st to take unlimited journeys on most trains operated by the Taiwan Railways Administration, intercity buses, metro and light rail trains, local city buses, limited ferry services, as well as bicycle sharing services such as U-Bike. Now, the pass is available at most places in Taiwan, including train stations and, of course, even convenience stores. Now, so Donovan, of course, the the aim of this pass, because it's not a national pass, it's a, a regional pass. So in the north, of course, we've got Jilung, Taipei, New Taipan, Taoyuan, and in the south, we've got Tainan, Kaohsiung, and Pingdong. And in the centre, they've got Taichung and... Uh, Zhenghua, Nanto, and Miaoli. So not, and they kick off on July 1st. Yeah, but it's not national. Why didn't they just come out with a national pass? Taiwan's not very big. Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Um, my guess is that they figured that the vast majority of commuters are local. Um, number two, I'm not sure they had the, the amount of subsidies necessary for the TRA, and the TRA is pri- privatizing. You know, that's the big one for inner city, the, that and the buses. And you'll notice it doesn't include the Taiwan high-speed rail. So my suspicion is they figured that it would be too expensive to do that or too confusing to budget for because it would be hard to figure out how to allocate budgets, whereas they could probably work with the local governments in each region, come up with rough estimates of how many people are commuting between each, and it would be a little bit easier to manage. It's unfortunate they don't have a national one because Taiwan is large enough um, in that, and it's too bad it doesn't include the high-speed rail, um, because there are instances where you could actually, say, live in the countryside in Taoyuan and commute into Taipei on an inner-city bus, say, for example, um, and you would save the person a lot of money. Um, which would, you would, you know, so that actually would work. But let's just say you move slightly south and you're in Shinju County, you know, and you, you want to take a train into Taipei to work, you can't do it. Um, so it's a little bit disappointing, um, you know. But I, I'm guessing that they had their, you know, the, it, it's the complications of trying to figure out the subsidies and apportion them. And then they'd have to negotiate across all 22 
uh, cities and counties, and I think that probably they figured was just a little bit too much to do. It's disappointing. I wish they had done it that way. But it's worth noting that here in central Taiwan, there's the, the regional T-Pass, and then the Taichung City has a separate T-Pass just for for people inside of Taichung. Um, so there's two variants of it locally. Um, and now the big issue that I have, and, and I don't know the answer to this yet, is because Taichung has for many years had this 10 kilometers free on public transport, on, on buses here in the city. But they, uh, they uh, a little over a year ago, cut off all foreigners except for those who are married to locals. So even if you're a permanent resident with an APRC, um, you are still, and you're, resident, you're a Taichung resident, you're still not counted as a resident under the system. So it's very discriminatory. Um, you know, they kicked us out of the 10-kilometer free system. So we have to pay, you know, we have to pay for the bus rides now. Um, and now they have these new uh, passes, There's and there's the resident price and the non-resident price, and the non-resident price on the T-passes much higher uh, for the local Taichung City one than the resident one. So the question is, will it apply to foreigners? And I'm going to guess probably not. So, Dimitri, I mean, two different prices in Taichung and no national travel pass. Well, because most people don't commute uh, from Taipei to Kaohsiung every day. But I think this is still a great policy. Is this still a great policy because there is, for once, a real understanding of the concern of the public? Wages of most workers haven't increased in years, and this could be a game changer for most people with little resources. Many people commute to work from suburban areas because they cannot afford to live in the city. So, you know, we need to remember that many people of uh, work in Taipei, but they commute from, for example, Jilong every day or from Taoyuan because they cannot afford to buy a house around Taipei. So if you spent like $2,000 per month on transportation, $1,200 is great. So I think this is really great and we hope that this gives a concrete benefits to the, the average Taiwanese and maybe authorities can come up with more of these plans in the future. Because, of course, Demetri, there's no East Coast one. There's no Hualien, Ilan, Taidong one. Yeah, but the problem here for the East Coast is that the system is already full. and It's already super hard to book seats on trains. And if they open the system too soon, uh, that would make it even more complicated for people who have family there to travel back home. So we hope, yes, that could this may be... Uh, uh, be the case in the future in the, in the East Coast, but for people in major cities around Taipei or Taichung or Kaohsiung, that could be really helpful. And labour and human rights advocates this week accused the new Taipei City Police Department of engaging in reckless behaviour that disregarded people's rights to religion. The statement came after police entered the Sacred Heart of Jesus Catholic Church in Shulin District late last month in pursuit of three suspects. Now, police originally said they chased the suspects into the church because they believed they were members of a fraud ring. However, it later transpired that the only one of the three to be arrested, or the only one they caught, in fact, was a Vietnamese migrant worker who had basically, it was found out later, that he'd left his employer. Now, the other two people, we don't know who they are, 
managed to do a runner and got away. But, needless to say, religious groups here were rather enraged by this, and the director of the Vietnamese Migrant and Immigrant Office of the Catholic Church's Shinzu Diocese, well, he didn't use expletives, but he used the word reckless behaviour that disregarded people's rights to religion, and he also called on the National Human Rights Commission and the National Police Agency to publicly denounce the officer's actions. So, Dimitri, we've got police running into a church, and, of course, the church did say they maybe they should have asked permission to enter the building. I believe there is a misunderstanding about this issue because of the famous novel The Hunchback of Notre Dame by French writer Victor Hugo and the famous, the equally famous uh, popular uh, Disney movie. Uh, there is no place in the country where the police cannot go. If this is true, you could see gangsters, drug dealers and controversial businessmen setting up their office in churches, temples and mosques. So entering a church can be shocking. The way we enter the church should be respectful. Uh, if, for example, if you enter into a mosque while taking off your shoes, it's, it's, an import, it's important, but it doesn't mean you cannot enter. So there is a point for police officers to sometimes enter those places. We hope they enter in a very respectful way, but we should be clear that there is no place in a country where the police cannot go. Yeah, I think in this particular case... Um from my my understanding is is that the individual they they arrested ran into the church to try and hide, um, which is a very different situation than if the police had gone in and started randomly checking people, for example, because there are for example a lot of Filipinos who do attend Catholic mass, some of whom may be undocumented. If the police had gone in and targeted random people and demanding them to show their papers, I think that would have been a lot more outrageous. Um, and that would have been unacceptable. But in this particular case, this is one individual who was running away from the police and specifically trying to use the church to hide. And so in this case, I think the police had, were, in, were in the right in this case. And before we go this week, Taiwan may be considered to be a true gourmet's dream, with a whole heap of food on offer from street corners to glitzy Michelin-starred restaurants. But things have taken a rather odd turn recently, as the ramen wars are now underway. And it all started when the Ramen Boy Noodle Bar in Taipei started selling isopods. Now, a bowl of isopod noodles was going for 1,480 NT per bowl. Now, next came a ramen shop in Yunlin called Yuan Ramen Noodles. And that started serving a whole frog atop of its bowl of noodles. And that was selling for 250 NT. And if that wasn't enough, then a noodle shop in Kaohsiung called the Shanghe Tung Noodle Shop is now selling durian ramen. Now what's interesting here is not only do you get the flavour of durian in your broth slices of the pungent fruit in the broth, you also get a bowl made of the durian skin Dimitri. Well, Taiwan we have already succeeded in destroying Italian traditions with our unique take on pizzas and adding pineapples and kimchi and, and even chicken meat. So uh, we're going next level and we're going after the ramen thing. So, but I would maybe it's not that 
popular yet. Uh, it's a local. These are local restaurants. They are doing more as a marketing stunt. They're trying to attract media attention. So the sea cockroach was something. Uh, if we go for uh, durian and then we have go for frogs, um, we need to understand this. The French, we do like snails and we also like frogs. But these are farm animals. Okay, they are raised to be eaten in a closed environment and that follows some strict rules so that you don't get any kind of uh, you know, viruses or you don't get sick after eating your dish. And so we should have we should not go after wild animals because I don't know if you remember in China in Wuhan they started eating bats and it ended up in a major uh, global outbreak a virus outbreak so yes farm animals are should be okay the way we eat the way we prepare the meat is very important and we should follow strict and follow strict rules when cooking but if we go for farm animals that could be very dangerous. Donovan. You know, I agree with Dimitri. I think these are marketing stunts for the most part. <laughs> Except the thing is that I can add two points here. One is that I actually think it's a good idea that Taiwan experiments with food because if you look at a lot of the popular dishes, they're not... It, you know, they're not actually local in origin. You know, for example, if you go to, you know, a cafeteria here, you'll likely see, you know, eggs and tomatoes, you know, scrambled eggs and tomatoes. That's where they took foreign ingredients, you know, in the form of tomatoes and then created a new dish from it. And there's all kinds of dishes. If you walk into a cafeteria, a whole bunch of the dishes will be are local creations. And... You know, you, and you know, Dimitri used the example of pizza. The the thing is, is that American pizzas are very different than the original Italian pizzas, and ironically, some influence from the United States has flowed back into Italy on on the pizza front. Um, so you know, and French pizzas are different than Italian pizzas. Um, so I, you know, I do think that cultures experimenting, putting their own twist on foods, you know, giving them a local character is is a good thing in the long run if it proves that people like it. Um, and now on these specific things, I, I, I'm, I don't know about these isopods. I don't know if it's a healthy or a dangerous thing to be eating them. I, I really don't know. I don't see durian lasting as a popular flavor for ramen. Um, but on the frog, um, you know, uh, that's fairly commonly eaten here in Taiwan, um, you know, under the name field chicken. Um, and one of my favorite dishes in Taiwan is the three cups field chicken. Um, you know, I, that's one of my all-time favorite dishes here in Taiwan. So I'm perfectly fine with the frog. Um, you know, I think they're great, um, and I, I, I can't see why they don't, wouldn't go well with uh, ramen. And I think that's where we'll leave it, because my stomach is turning round. Anyway, I've been joined on today's show by Dimitri Buras here in the studio. Yeah, what's well, great to be here. And from Taijong by Donovan Smith. And great to be here as well. Who's probably having... Do you, do you have frog with your cornflakes this morning? Yeah, oh, of course. <laughs> Durian, too, but, you know, I, I'm kind of an unusual guy. You should try snails.
Anyway, thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And there won't be a show next week, that being Friday, June the 23rd, as it's the four-day Dragon Boat Festival long weekend holiday. Anyway, don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.